On the 2nd of April 2020, UK Health Secretary Matt Hancock was asked a question about Premier League football clubs. With the coronavirus pandemic now firmly set in, the news of that particular few days was about whether the top clubs in the country should be using the government scheme to pay 80% of employee wages, allowing businesses and possibly football clubs to furlough their staff. Is it moral, the question came from Mike Settle of The Herald, for Premier League clubs to refuse to cut salaries of very highly paid star players while cutting the wages of non-playing staff on furlough? I think that everybody needs to play their part in this national effort, Hancock answered, and that means Premier League footballers too. Notice how the emphasis shifted from clubs in the question to footballers in the answer. It was the most emblematic moment of a few days in early April where Premier League footballers were the wealth target of choice. Calls from the country's Conservative government that these undeniably wealthy individuals should do their bit didn't extend to the rest of the nation's rich list. Many read a class analysis into this. What separated footballers from the owners of the clubs they played for or from the other multi-millionaires in the country was class, or a perception of worthiness to their wealth which is also generally tied up with class. And this is nothing new. In 1914, opinion writers raged that the Football League hadn't cancelled their season after the outbreak of war, the war that would come to be known as the Great War or World War I. This was tied in with the class of the players, the class of the supporters and the class of the critics, and the way that the war impacted football would continue even after the armistice in 1918. War was declared in Britain in August 1914. At the time, Blackburn Rovers were reigning champions, 1913-14 making it two league titles in three years for the team. Aston Villa had just finished as runners-up for the second time in a row, and in fact Villa had also been the league's bridesmaids in 1910-11 and 1907-08 as well. They won the league, their sixth title in 1909-1910 though, so fans in the Midlands will have had some joy in their footballing lives back then. Attendances were up from the 1912-13 season, and an average of around 30,000 people had attended top division matches on Blackburn's path to glory. England's 1914-15 season hadn't started when the war was declared. It was due to, and it would, commence in early September. At the time, it was assumed that this would be a short war, if there is such a thing. You know, it'll all be over by Christmas and all that. And certainly nobody imagined it would last for four years. I want to note here that I'll only be talking about what was happening at home here. When we think of football and World War I, we, at least in England, probably think about it being played in the trenches and generally what the soldiers were doing. But I don't want to go over that fairly well-trodden ground. I'll also be talking about England specifically. Different nations in the United Kingdom would take different approaches during the war and had different historic and class relationships surrounding the sport as well. The English FA, even though they held the line of playing the season as planned, made quick moves to help the war effort. The FA's administrative capabilities were made available to the war office, clubs had to offer their fields for military training for at least part of the week, and there were recruitment posts at stadiums and processions and speeches at half-time to try and persuade men to sign up. At that point in time, joining the army was voluntary. And in the September of 1914 alone, just over 460,000 recruits joined the ranks. 
The criticism had already started, though. In late August, the vice chairman of Portsmouth Football Club, Bruce Cornford, wrote to the Portsmouth Evening News to defend his club, which had been criticised in a letter to the paper earlier that week. Cornford pointed out that not only had two of their players already signed up for the forces, but that the revenue from their pre-season friendlies had been sent to the war fund. The thing about history is that it can be as much about the present as it is about the past, and a line of his letter has far more resonance now during the coronavirus pandemic than it might have done to me just a few months ago. So far as possible during the war, Cornford wrote, it is a primary necessity of our economic position that we should not only insist on business as usual, but also sport as usual. This, the economic reality, was part of the reason why the FA took its decision to play the season as planned. While the sport wasn't the behemoth that it is today, it was still a business that employed staff, both within the clubs and within the FA itself. It was much easier for amateur sports of the period, like hockey, rugby union and lawn tennis, to stop their competitions and receive admiring nods of approval from sections of the public. Pandemics with viruses that can spread person to person are different to wars, but economy versus other major national priority is a discussion which has seen a resurgence in recent weeks. The prospect of football halting completely for months or years has also become much more real, and I think it's easier to understand and really feel the impact that cancelling the season would have had on fans. Many of the people who would be turning up at football matches during the war would be carrying on working in important industries as what we'd now call key workers, after all. In announcing that the 1914-15 season would continue as planned, President of the Football League John McKenna wrote in late August that To sit and mourn is to aggravate the nation's sorrow. Any sport which can minimise the grief, help the nation to bear its sorrow, relieve the oppression of continuous strain and save the people at home from panic and undue depression is a great national asset. A certain section of the upper and middle classes of England didn't see it this way though. London's Evening News newspaper announced at the start of September that its football edition that Saturday wouldn't be published with an accompanying article titled Duty Before Sport. In that column, the Evening News said The young men who play football and the young men who look on have better work to do. The trumpet calls them, their country calls them, the heroes in the trenches call them. They are summoned to leave their sport and to take part in the great game. That game is war. For life or death. A recruitment poster the same year played on this theme as well, trying to taunt young men into action. Young men of Britain, it read, the Germans said you were not in earnest. The rest of the poster gave a supposed excerpt from a German newspaper, the Frankfurter Zeitung, which read, The young Britons prefer to exercise their long limbs on the football ground rather than to expose them to any sort of risk in the service of their country. There was, in some of these calls, an undeniable classist element. Historian and University College London professor Albert Pollard commented that there is no excuse for diverting from the front thousands of athletes in order to feast the eyes of crowds of inactive spectators who were either unfit to fight or else unfit to be fought for. It probably didn't help matters that the efforts, recruitment stations, marches, speeches, designed to get these working-class fans flocking to the front, weren't particularly effective. Although clubs kept some figures of the number of their fans who signed up, 
Matches with thousands of spectators could lead to just a handful of registrations, and getting a handful could be a good day. The classism was felt by fans too. A reader of the Sheffield Daily Telegraph wrote to the paper in December 1914 to respond to a writer in that day's edition who had attacked professional footballers and their supporters. Partway through their letter, they wrote, There is no doubt in my mind that the writer of the article that they were writing in response to is a person of some social standing who thinks men at football on Saturday afternoons have no business there. Personally, I think they have as much right to be there as the golfers have to be on the links, and also the big guns who are following the hounds, a reference to hunting. Further down, the reader wrote, echoing the types of defence of footballing millionaires that have happened recently in 2020, that I hope and trust that the next time a writer attacks footballers, he will attack sport collectively. The editor of Chelsea's official club programme, the Chelsea FC Chronicle, also picked up on it and railed against it in as clear language as possible. The war against professional football, he wrote in a column in early December 1914, is a class war. It is directed wholly and solely against the working man's weekly sixpenny worth of temporary freedom from his daily round of labour. The early 19th century was still an age where amateurism in sports was seen as a virtue where sport was pursued for sport's own sake and not for money. Seven years before war broke out, a schism appeared in the fabric of English football and the Amateur Football Association was formed, although, after not faring too well on its own, it had patched things up with the FA in early 1914, just months before war was declared and everything got very complicated again. This backdrop of attitudes seems to have filtered into the wider discussions in the press about professional football's decision to continue playing. The condemnation was less severe on the whole outside London, and was particularly strong in Lord Northcliffe's quite establishment papers in the capital, the Times, the Daily Mail and the Evening News. They may not have been representative of the total public, but they were influential sections of the press to say the least. Their criticisms may have contributed to the creation of the Footballers' Battalion, or the 17th Middlesex Regiment, in December of 1914. While it may have been a publicity exercise in part, 300 professional players and 4,500 men in total served as part of the original battalion or the second footballers' battalion, the 23rd Middlesex Regiment, that was set up, with around one in five losing their lives during the war. Some of the battalion was even made up of football fans following their idols to the front. It seems trite to pivot from this back to the football. But 1914-15 was to be the last season held during either of the two world wars. On the outbreak of the Second World War in 1939, football in England was swifter to close things down. Things hadn't quite been officially decided by the time of the 1915 FA Cup final in April. It had been reported that a decision had been made not to carry out the 1915-16 season just before the match, but the Football League quickly denied it but the mood music was that this was the end of professional football for the foreseeable. The FA may well have wished they'd call things off sooner, because a match on Good Friday, April the 2nd of that year, resulted in an almighty betting scandal. Manchester United had been struggling in the 1914-15 season and were in danger of relegation. A 2-0 home win against Liverpool on the Easter weekend was certainly helpful, but there were some... Uh, how shall I put this, irregularities. 
A penalty was deliberately missed and United forward Fred Pagnum was yelled at by teammates when he hit the bar with his team 2-0 up. The pre-arranged scoreline that would win a handful of players on both sides a fair amount of money. Match reports on the day smelled something fishy and the match fixing was quickly investigated and uncovered. Somewhat stunningly, Manchester United kept their points from this match, successfully apparently, arguing that because they didn't know about it, the club shouldn't be punished. This was fantastic news for United, because without those three points they'd have finished bottom of the league, and, in a way, this Manchester United-Liverpool match-fixing has fed the flames of the Tottenham Hotspur-Arsenal rivalry. When football resumed after the war, a proposal was put forward to expand the Football League from 40 to 44 teams, with each of the two divisions going up from 20 to 22 sides. Applications were opened up for admission to the league, kind of doing away with the usual promotion relegation that would have come into place at the close of the 1914-15 season. I say kind of, because by and large it followed how those wartime league tables had ended up. Everyone felt that it would be unfair for Chelsea, who finished 19th, in the relegation places but only a point below Manchester United, to go down due to a fixed match. Derby County and Preston North End, who finished first and second in the second tier, were both promoted to the expanded first division. And that left one place. Spurs, as the bottom-placed first division team in 1914-15, naturally wanted to join Chelsea and stay in the top flight. They would have been in the relegation places regardless of United's match-fixing though, so their claim was considered less good than Chelsea's, who were unanimously re-elected to the first tier. Joining Spurs and Chelsea in the application process, though, was a host of other teams. Birmingham City, Wolverhampton Wanderers, Barnsley, Hull City, Nottingham Forest and Stockport County all wanted in. Oh, and Arsenal, of course. Most of these teams had a fair claim on league position. Third to seventh place in the second division in 1915 read Barnsley, Wolves, Arsenal, Birmingham, Hull. Stockport County finished 14th that season and Forest 18th, rather more speculative bids at promotion, although Forrest received three votes, seemingly on virtue of history alone. But Arsenal had Sir Henry Norris, their chairman, a sitting MP and mayor of Fulham, on their side. Arsenal got 18 votes, Spurs got eight, and Arsenal have been in the top flight ever since. But the scandals of the 1919 season wouldn't end there. Although the FA and Football League had stopped their organised competitions after the 1914-15 season, that didn't mean that the sport as a whole stopped. Teams played in regional competitions, although players were only paid expenses, and there was some understandable disruption as the war continued for a second, and then a third, and then a fourth year. In 1919, a player called Charlie Copeland for Leeds City, not Leeds United, Leeds City, wanted a pay rise. A footballer wanting a pay rise? Same old, same old. But Copeland claimed to have evidence of illegal payments to players during the war years, and he threatened to take them to the authorities. Leeds called his bluff. Copeland followed through. This was a big deal because, although Leeds City had been in the second division before the war and would be afterwards, they'd enjoyed quite a lot of success in the 1915-1918 to period under future Huddersfield Town and Arsenal manager Herbert Chapman. Guest players, kind of like loans for anyone who was local enough to turn out for you, were allowed under the wartime rules, but payment certainly wasn't. 
At the end of August, a joint commission between the FA and the Football League was announced. They met in September, where it filtered out what the investigation was about. And in early October, Leeds City's directors resigned en masse. It seems like this collective resignation was an attempt to save the club from further punishment. However, it also seems like they just didn't want to hand over the relevant paperwork which would have confirmed their guilt. Leeds City had already been suspended by the FA, and it was decided that this suspension would continue until these documents saw the light of day, at which point the Football League expelled the team from their competitions. There's a nice little aftertaste of salaciousness to this too, with suggestions that Port Vale had been whispering in an unsporting manner in the Football League's ear that they'd be free to take Leeds City's place if Leeds were, well, removed. And, as it happened, Port Vale did indeed take the place that Leeds vacated. The Yorkshire Evening Post carried a tell-all interview with one of the former chairman, Joe Connor, on Tuesday the 14th of October. By that Friday, the same paper reported on transfer offers coming in for City's players, as well as Copeland's side of the story, which is that he was actually asking not to have his wages cut, rather than asking for a pay rise. On the Saturday came a report that Leeds City's ground, Elland Road, was to be let to the Yorkshire Amateurs Association Club for the rest of the season. Just ten days later, Leeds United was beginning to rise out of the ashes. By the start of November, they had players, and by the end of November, they'd played their first match in the Midlands League, a regional league outside of the Football League's top two tiers. They'd be elected to the Football League in May 1920, and the rest, as they say, is history. These are fun stories about Tottenham Hotspur and Manchester United's match-fixing, Leeds City and Leeds United, but they may have had a more meaningful impact than their effect on those clubs involved. Possibly due to the perceived lack of patriotism in 1914, and possibly helped along by these scandals, public schools, for non-UK listeners this means the poshest of the posh, stopped playing football and shifted to rugby union after the war. Classism permeating into the discourse around football isn't a modern phenomenon, and one that, far from being reduced, was exacerbated by the First World War. <laughs>